Psalm 26 of David. Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord and have not faltered. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. I do not sit with the deceitful, nor do I associate with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go about your altar, Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise and telling of all your wonderful deeds. Lord, I love the house where you live, the place where your glory dwells. Do not take away my soul along with sinners, my life with those who are bloodthirsty, in whose hands are wicked schemes, whose right hands are full of bribes. I lead a blameless life. Deliver me and be merciful to me. My feet stand on level ground. In this great congregation, I will praise the Lord. This is God's word. If we've not met, my name is Phil. I'm one of the ministers here at CCM. Let's pray as we look at this psalm together. Father God, we do ask that your spirit, who caused these words to be written, would be our teacher and our guide. Help us, we pray, not just to have minds that understand what the words mean, but hearts that long to obey you. Amen. Uh, What's your favourite guilty pleasure TV? My favourite guilty, well at least the one I'm willing to admit to from up here, (laughs) which may be a slightly different question, is uh, The Apprentice. I love The Apprentice. It's the, uh, I love the opening credits, you know, um, Prokofiev's uh, Montagues and Capulets, I had to look it up, and, uh, and over the top of that wonderful music is a series of quotations, well, really boasts from the wannabe entrepreneurs as they power walk across the Millennium Footbridge, dragging their wheelie bag, and proclaiming, I am the greatest entrepreneur since, you know, Lord Sugar himself, Donald Trump has nothing on me. You know, they, they proclaim how awesome they are. And then what follows in each episode is a cringe-worthy example of the enormous yawning chasm between their boasts and reality, their claims and their actual abilities. Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. Well, that's rather awkward, isn't it? I mean, how many of us can honestly say, Amen to that verse as we sit here? You know, forget Lord Sugar's boardroom. Imagine standing in God's courtroom before the Almighty on his throne and saying, Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. Now, of course, uh, for those who've been Christians a while, we know the Sunday school answer to this dilemma. None of us are perfect, But that's why as Christians we rejoice in Jesus. We fail to live up to the claims of this psalm, but Jesus pays for our sins. Which is true, but... You have to ask yourself, what on earth was David doing writing this psalm, if that's how we're meant to think about it? A thousand years before Jesus came, what on earth prompted him to write a psalm which kind of doesn't work... For a thousand years. Uh, Why did the editor of the book of Psalms think, oh, this is a psalm worth including in the book of Psalms, if for for over 500 years it really didn't work? Was David, was the editor thinking, I really have no idea what this means, but I have this nagging sense the Holy Spirit kind of wants me to include it, although it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Actually, when we look into the psalm and try and work out what it 
what it's actually saying, what we see is that this is not a psalm that celebrates the sinless perfection of hypocrites. It's a psalm that celebrates the sincere devotion of one who trusts in God. It's not a psalm about sinless perfection, but about sincere devotion. And ultimately, ultimately, this psalm teaches us to put our trust in God rather than in me, which might seem perverse at this point. But when we read it carefully, I think that's what we'll see. At least I hope that's what we'll see. Uh, The essential message is this. In Psalm 26, David does rejoice in his devotion to God. But he rejoices because it gives him confidence to cry out to God for salvation and justice. In other words, what David's praying here is, God, I am one of your children. I really am one of your children. So please help me like you've promised you will. He's rejoicing. Look, because I'm a genuine believer, I get to turn to you for help, Lord. Let's, uh, let's run through the psalm and see how we get there. You'll see uh, you, you've got an outline printed on the, on the back of the sheets. Um, and what we're going to do really is uh, run through the psalm, working out what it says, and then just think through two ways in which you and I, as we um, read this psalm, as we think about praying this psalm for ourselves, might use it now that we stand on the other side of the things that the Old Testament pointed forward to. So in other words, the whole Old Testament points to Jesus. Jesus has now come and died and and risen again. So how how is things different for you and for me? So we'll work out what it meant, what it means, and then how things are a bit different for you and me as we come to this psalm after Jesus. So just four little sections to take us through the psalms. I have nothing to hide from you. I have nothing in common with the wicked. I have no greater delight than knowing you. I have no greater hope than your justice. Firstly, I have nothing to hide from you. David starts the psalm by calling God. It's an extraordinary thing to do, calling God to turn the spotlight of his gaze onto David's heart. Verses 1 to 3. Vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I've trusted in the Lord and have not faltered. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind, for I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. He's saying, look at my life, God. Look at the way I conduct my work. Look at how I speak to my family. Look at the things that I read and watch and think about in private. Look into my daydreams. When you look at my life, you'll see I am a genuine follower of you, God. Which is not as arrogant as it probably sounds to our ears. Let me show you why. Firstly, the meaning of the word blameless this, this word blameless that appears in the very first verse, it doesn't mean in the Psalms sinless and perfect. It doesn't mean sinless and perfect. So if you turn back a page to Psalm 19 verse 13, you get a lovely explanation of what it means. So Psalm 19 verse 13. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. So it doesn't mean no sin at all. It means I'm basically walking in your path, God. I'm not living my life in a sort of willful, open, deliberate rebellion. Your way's this way and I'm walking this way. It means, look, I I fail. I, I don't obey you perfectly as I should. But I am basically trying to go your way, God. There is sin in my life, but I'm not happy about it. I'm fighting and sometimes failing, but I am fighting, Lord. 
Actually, when you uh, turn to the New Testament, you read uh, the same word used, this word blameless, is used in the, in the qualifications for an elder, for a leader of the church. So in 1 Timothy 3.2, we read, um, now the elder, the overseer, is to be blameless, above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable. Same word. If church leaders had to be perfect, there would be no church leaders. It's just saying they need to be people who are, whose life shows they're going God's way. So that's the first thing. Secondly, look at the emphasis of the words. Actually, the emphasis isn't as much on David's behavior as we, as we think it is. But the problem is that the first verse is so glaring that we, it sort of drowns out what's going on in the rest of the verses. Actually, I think the emphasis is more on his trust in God. So verse 1 isn't really a boast. Verse 1 is a prayer to God to help him, to enter judgment for him. Vindicate me, Lord, why I've led a blameless life, which means I have trusted in you and not faltered. So he's saying blamelessness for him, the reason he wants God to, to enter judgment for him is that he's trusted God. Not, Lord, I've earned stuff from you, but I trust you. Likewise, uh, verse 3 I've always been mindful of your unfailing love and lived in reliance on your faithfulness. Look, your love and your faithfulness are the things I rely on, God, not my good works. So you could, I mean, in one sense, you could paraphrase this bit as, help me, God, because I really, I'm a true follower of yours. Examine me and you'll see I trust in you and your love. Let's carry on. So the second stanza, I have nothing in common with the wicked. I have nothing to hide from you, verses 1 to 3. I'm not perfect, but I am trusting you. And then secondly, I have nothing in common with the wicked. So he contrasts himself with hypocrites and evildoers in in verses 4 to 5. I do not sit with the deceitful, nor do I associate with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. So he he contrasts himself with hypocrites and evildoers. In other words, uh, whether it's people who pretend to be Christians but live a different way or people who um, are just quite happy to reject everything of God, I don't, I don't allow myself to be influenced by them. I don't follow their ways, God. Uh, or as one writer put it, he says, I have nothing in common with those who have nothing in common with you, God. And then thirdly, I have no greater delight than knowing you. Again, the emphasis of these verses is the genuineness of David's faith, the sincerity of his devotion. But now we move into a a different realm. It's the religious realm as he talks about uh, how he worships God at the temple. I wash my hands in innocence and go about your altar, Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise and telling of all your wonderful deeds. Lord, I love the house where you live, the place where your glory dwells. Now, these are Old Testament ways of saying the deepest love of my life is my love for you, God. I have no greater treasure than a relationship with you, my God and my Savior. That's what he's saying here. It's just sort of Old Testament language. And then finally, I have no greater hope than your justice. So he comes back to his plea. And again, it's not as arrogant as it sounds to our ears. The first three verses, he's not claiming sinless devotion. Sinless perfection, he's claiming sincere devotion. And the last four verses, he's not expecting God to declare him perfect. He's just saying, God, treat me differently from those who hate you. Verses 9 to 12. Do not take away my soul along with sinners, my life with those who are bloodthirsty, in whose hands are wicked schemes, whose right hands are full of bribes. I lead a blameless life. Deliver me, be be merciful to me. 
My feet stand on level ground in the great congregation. I will praise the Lord. Now here it remembers, it pays to remember what's going on in book one of the Psalms, Psalms 1 to 41. They're written by David, Psalms 1 to 41, and overwhelmingly they detail his experience as the one who's been anointed as king by God, but who's hunted, hated, persecuted, lied against. And so he's praying here, Lord, surely you'll treat those who hate you and want to destroy your kingdom differently from those who love you and want to see your kingdom established. Surely you'll protect your anointed king through whom your people are blessed rather than allow his enemies to triumph. They're not going to stop till I'm dead, Lord. So it's either I die and your kingdom is crushed or you vindicate me, Lord, and your people are protected. Lord, who are you going to to come into bat for? Who are you going to protect? Who are you going to fight for? So actually, this is not a Pharisee psalm as we often read it. David is not showing off, Lord, I'm so wonderful and perfect. You You ought to accept me the way I am. Rather, he's praying, Lord, I am yours. So please, please help me, save me. Well, you could uh, look at it this way. There are are two ways to answer the question, have you kept your wedding vows? Actually, it's a slightly complicated question for me because I memorized my vows and I forgot one line, which means there is one line I don't actually have to do. Um, My wife would say there's more than one line I failed to do, but that's not the point. I can't remember which line it is, though, which is rather frustrating. But there we go. Uh, From one perspective, I have failed to keep my marriage vows. I fail my wife regularly. I'm thoughtless. I'm very slow to say I'm sorry. I'm proud. I'm self-righteous. I put myself first. So actually, if you, if you examine me against the standard of my, my wedding vows, you'd have to say, no, I've failed miserably. But there is another sense in which I can say, no, I've kept my wedding vows. Not perfectly, but sincerely. I'm not a perfect husband, but I have tried. I do pray for my wife. I try to seek her good. I try to love and provide for her. I've not been unfaithful to her. So depending on how you look at it, if you, if you think it's a standard you've got to live up to perfectly, you'd say, no, you failed miserably to keep your wedding vows. But if, if you're saying, when you look at the wedding vows and look at you, do I see a genuine husband? Well, I hope that you would, you'd say, yeah, okay, in that sense, yes, you are. You're, you're Juliet's husband. You, you, are a, you are one who has lived up to those vows. And I think that's the sense in which David is using it here. He's not saying, I am the perfect follower of God. He's saying, I'm a real follower of God. And David rejoices in his devotion. All the things that show that he really is a follower of God, he rejoices in them because they give him confidence to cry out to God, because he knows God loves and protects his children. He says, look, look at the things in my life that show I'm I'm really your, uh, your follower, your child, your anointed king. Look at those things and now please act and save me. He rejoices because they give him confidence to come before God. Okay, so what? What do we do with a psalm like this? How do we use it? Let me give you a negative and a positive way that we, if we trust in Jesus, can use this psalm. Negatively, we rejoice in Christ's sinless perfection. And positively, we hope for God's perfect justice. Let me explain what I mean. Firstly, negatively, we rejoice in Christ's sinless perfection. So although the psalm is not actually saying, God, my life is perfect, judged against your perfect law, you'll find I deserve heaven. Although it's not saying that, it is 
basically impossible for us to read this psalm without feeling like it's a standard that we're judged against. It's impossible to read it without feeling like a miserable failure, if we're honest. And that is when it's a joy to remember that like the whole Bible, the Psalms point to Christ. In these early Psalms, David's experience points to the life of the the true Messiah, the true anointed King Jesus. And what is poetically true of David is perfectly true of Jesus. As the the Puritans put it, uh, David fulfills the Psalms to the letter, Jesus fulfills them to the better. And Psalms like Psalm 26, they they open a window for us onto what Jesus was like. They show his devotion to God, his trust in God to establish his rule, the brutal reality of his daily life, struggling, battling against wicked people who hated him and would not stop until they've tortured him to death. So Psalm 26, it, it shows for us the Jesus who is not just blameless, but is sinless. It points us to the one who trusted God with unwavering devotion every day of his life. To the one who delighted in God his Father with every fiber of his being. To the one who looked to God his Father to deliver him from his enemies, crying out as he died, into your hands I commit my spirit. It points us to the Jesus who God raised from the dead into triumphant life and seated on an eternal throne. And because Jesus fulfills this psalm perfectly, you and I don't need to feel guilt and shame as we read its words. Because if we trust in Jesus, we are united to him by faith. His his death pays for our sins and his perfect life is attributed to us, is swapped in for us. Uh, Romans 5.19 puts it this way. Just as through the disobedience of the one man, Adam, many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. His righteousness, his perfect life is given to us. So we can read this psalm aware that we fall short of everything David proclaims and yet we can rejoice knowing that in Jesus we are made right. Like I say, that is in one sense the negative way to use the psalm because it's it's not the primary thing the psalm is there for. But we'd be idiots if we pretended that's not what it does to us. It's what happens to my heart when I read it. I feel like a miserable failure. And so it's right that we reflect on how Jesus fulfills it perfectly and how Jesus saves us. But there is a positive way for us to use this psalm as well. And that is as a prayer of hope in God's perfect justice. And we can pray to God for justice as David does here because as C.S. Lewis points out, the Psalms often when they talk of God judging are talking not about a criminal trial but a civil trial. What on earth do I mean by that? Well, usually as Christians we think of God's judgment like a, a criminal trial. In a criminal trial you've got the accused here and you've got the standard of the law here and the accused is judged against whether they have broken this law. And the Bible talks about us being judged by God in those terms. God the judge, and on the one side, him and his perfect standard of law that reflects his beautiful character. On the other side, the less than perfect standard of of my life, trying to keep his law. And when we think of God judging, we almost always think only in those terms. There's, There's me and my less than perfect standard, and there's God, his perfect standard, and me judged guilty. That's the way we think. But actually, the Bible talks about judgment in another way as well, more like a civil trial. See, in a civil trial, it's more a case of the judge choosing between two different parties rather than seeing whether one party has perfectly kept the law. 
And that's what's going on in this psalm. David's not saying, judge me against the perfect standard of your law, God, and you'll find that I am perfect too. He's saying, Lord, judge between me and my enemies, me imperfect but trying to obey you, and them hating you. Now, whose cause are you going to uphold, God? I think that uh, there's a vicar who was told uh, he had to take a, uh, a funeral for um, a well-known gangster family, the older brother of whom, sort of Cray-esque types, uh, died. And the younger brother came to see the vicar and said, Vicar, in the eulogy, you are going to say that my brother was a saint. And the vicar's left with a dilemma because he'd like to keep his kneecaps, but he'd also like to keep his integrity and not lie. And so he stands up to deliver the eulogy and says, well, the deceased in front of us was a wicked man. He lied, he stole, he defrauded pensioners, he beat and he intimidated people. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. Yeah. <laughs> and in one sense, that's what's going on here. Well, you know, David's not a criminal, but he's saying, look, compare us, Lord. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but you're a good and a just God, so surely you'll uphold the more righteous cause. Uh, for those who are familiar with Bible words, the word vindicate in verse 1 is not the righteousness word, Sadiq. It's, it's mishpat. It's a general judging, ruling word. David's not saying, uh, declare me righteous. He's saying, enter a judgment between our two causes. Choose between us. And so that, that is something we can pray. It's something that you and I can pray personally when we face injustice when uh, we're wronged at work or deeply hurt by people we thought loved us, we can pray, Lord, vindicate me. Lord, please, would you bring about justice? It's something we can and should pray as we look around the world and see Christians and others facing brutal injustice. Uh, Read again this week in Turkey, another six churches had their property declared state property and kicked out. And we can pray for them. Lord, vindicate your people. Not because they're perfect, but because they're yours. But still, we have the question, can I take these words on my lips in the same way that David says them? And I would just caution us against doing so, praying through Psalm 26 exactly as it is. But for this reason, you see, for an Old Testament believer like David... He relates to God through the law. So for David to say, God, I am a genuine follower of yours, not perfect, but genuine. What he turns to for proof for that is obeying the law. So he says, look at the things I do. Look at the, uh, the way I offer sacrifices when I fail. So he talks about his temple devotion and he talks about his obedience. But in the New Testament, we don't relate to God through the law. We relate to God through Jesus who keeps the law in our place. So Jesus keeps the law and we relate to God through Jesus. So for us, instead of saying, we still pray, Lord, I'm a genuine believer, please look after me. But instead of saying, look at the things I do that prove I'm a genuine believer, we say, I trust in Jesus. That's the New Testament equivalent. Instead of look at the blameless life I've lived, it's more, I trust in Jesus, so please look after me. Because David relates to God through the law, we relate to God through Jesus Christ who keeps the law. So the the New Testament version of verse 1 would be, Lord, please bring justice for I trust in your son Jesus Christ. And actually that's a, it's a better thing for us to be able to pray because it means we're free from the sort of introspection that dangerously looks too deep inside me and can so quickly lose any confidence to approach God depending on how well I've behaved. 
Our lives matter. How we behave matters. But the danger is when we, when we pray, Lord, look at me and my life. We slip into pride when we get things right. Or we lose any confidence to come before God when we're messing up. But just as David prayed, Lord, vindicate me for I've led a blameless life. You and I get to pray the same thing in a better way. When we pray, Lord, vindicate me for I trust in Jesus who led a perfect life. And when we fail, we have his perfection to lean on. We can pray with confidence, therefore, to a God of justice. Confident that just as God vindicated Jesus, who trusted in him and was put to death and yet raised to life. So all those who trust in Jesus, well, if we put our hope in God, he will bring perfect justice in his good time. But as I thought about it this morning, there is one more thing I think this psalm teaches us as we close. Uh, one, one thing that actually keeps us a bit closer to the words of this psalm and that helps us as we, as we perhaps pray through the words of this psalm, which is there's one thing that this psalm shows beautifully, which is how good, how joyful, how happy it is to live wholeheartedly for Jesus And you see the joy and the peace in David of having a united heart, a clear, undivided devotion to Jesus Christ, to his God. I've been mindful of your unfailing love and lived in reliance on your faithfulness. I don't sit with the deceitful nor associate with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. Lord, I love the house where you live, the place where your glory dwells. I wonder if you saw the TV show uh, Undercover. Um, it was on um, earlier this year. About a guy who was an undercover cop sent in to um, a group that the police were worried about, a civil justice group. And he ended up um, dating and then eventually marrying the leader of this group, a young lawyer. And he ends up having a family with her. And when the TV show hits, uh, suddenly it's getting crunch point. She's been appointed a senior judge and the police are worried that she's going to uncover some wrongdoing uh, from earlier on. But what you get in the earlier episodes is, uh, as it becomes obvious, that this guy has this double life. He is, on the one hand, this devoted family man and on the other hand, he's an undercover cop reporting on his, fam- on his wife. You sense just how awful... It- he-, he can't enjoy his family much as he loves them because... Well, there's a lie at the heart of it. And, and yet he can't enjoy being with his cop mates because actually he loves his family and he's just split. He's torn apart right down the middle of his life. And as Christians, this psalm reminds us that wholeheartedly living for Jesus is so much better than doing the spiritual splits. And I guess many of us here will know, and it's better to uh, not to learn from experience, that You cannot enjoy doing things that God says no to. Living a life, indulging sin on the side if you're a Christian. You just can't enjoy it. Because once you become a Christian, there is just this nagging, annoying voice of the Holy Spirit tugging at your conscience. Meaning that you you just can't enjoy those sinful things the way that you used to be able to. But neither can you just just go and launch yourself wholeheartedly into those into enjoying your christian life when when actually there's a chunk of you wants to indulge all sorts of sinful desires you end up just feeling split no joy as a christian 
and yet unable to, unable to just launch off into the sinful desires either. And yet you read a psalm like this and you see, oh, look at the joy of undivided living. Look at the confidence that comes of, of knowing I'm not perfect, but I'm living for God. And it means I feel confident to come before God. And I feel a sense of integrity and wholeheartedness and unity about life. And best of all, I know when I fail, as all of us do, that this psalm points me to the Christ. Not to David, but to the Christ who is the perfect David, who died to forgive my failures. It's a wonderful psalm. It's not hollow words for us if we trust in Jesus. For it shows us what a devoted life to Jesus looks like and how good it is. And it reminds us of the one who lived perfectly and who gives us the perfection that means we can stand before God without fear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, uh, for this psalm that we find odd and troubling and confusing. Father, we thank you for uh, just the beautiful life it depicts. And Father, we ask for your strength and help that we might live wholehearted, devoted lives to you. We might not uh, uh, split ourselves trying to uh, secretly indulge sins that actually will never make us happy. Father, would you give us... Um, Hearts that are undivided, that love you and that can enjoy the integrity and the beauty of, of walking in your ways. But Father, too, as we, as we read the words of this psalm, it's impossible for us not to sense the ways in which we fail you. And so we thank you, Father, that we have uh, the greater David, the one to whom David pointed, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose death pays for our sins and whose life is given to us as a perfect record that we might always approach you with confidence and with joy. And so we pray, Father, we would have courage to come before you without fear or shame because of Jesus. Amen.